episode five. Joining us on the phone this evening to discuss the economy and other areas of interest is Duncan Niederauer, former partner at Goldman Sachs and former CEO of the New York Stock Exchange. We're going to start with the grim, dark side of the economy, namely the crisis of 08, 09, and 10. The normal thing you would do as a leader is you would go to some of your mentors and say, you know, this is all new to me. I want to do my best. I'll put in all the work I have to put in. Um, you guys must have seen this before. Can you coach me? Can you give me some counsel? The Dow has yeah. gained almost 6,000 points since Trump was elected and, and peaked in January at around 26.6, roughly. What do you think this is attributable to? Is I personally think you're going to see more volatility now. I think last year, it felt like the market was volatile because we had the daily tweet from the White House or, or it felt noisy, but it never really translated into underlying volatility in the markets as the markets would measure it. I'm less worried about the stock market than what can happen geopolitically that might impact the market. Why is it they, they've had some very successful companies in an environment where they have lived in tariffs? Why is that? Why have they not been impacted? In the two largest economies' interest to just figure out how to uh, work together because every other alternative is less attractive. If you're not surrounding yourself with people who challenge you, who tell you the truth, who, you know, who, who tell you that, you know, some of your ideas are good, but some aren't, um, like, people get really nervous. If we put the rhetoric aside, is there merit in this America First policy to level the playing field? I'll feel better if someone would just kind of do the math for us lay out what the situation is, lay out whether it really needs to be fixed or not. Um, and if so, where does it need to be fixed? And I want to bring in a, a question from one of our listeners. What do th we three think the expectation is of businesses in America feeling these immediate hardships? Understanding in this equation who the players are and who has the leverage. What we're finding is that these CEOs are taking a stance in political issues. As Old Dominion says in a great country song, chase after the dream, don't chase after the money. And if you do what you're good at and you do what you love, you win. Episode five of our spring season. I can't believe it's taken us this long to address the economy, but I'm actually glad it has because now we have about 15 months of Trump's presidency behind us and can take a look at his America First policy and other initiatives like tax reform as possible drivers for the huge uptick uh, that we've all experienced. Joining us on the phone this evening to discuss the economy and other areas of interest is Duncan Niederauer, former partner at Goldman Sachs and former CEO of the New York Stock Exchange. Uh, Duncan, thank you for taking the time away from your family this evening, including your 12-day-old grandchild. Uh, thank you, Harold, and thank you, Drake. Appreciate it. I'm happy to be here. So, Thank you very much, Harold. Good evening to you. And by way of agenda, we'll hit on, a, uh, on recent economic performance, discuss the recent phenomena, if you will, of CEO activism in a, a more polarized political climate, and then time permitting, some antitrust comments, as well as cryptocurrency and blockchain. So a lot to cover. Um, but 
let's dive right into it. And and Duncan, we want to bring you back to 2007 to start when you joined the NYSE as CEO, of course, just several months before the financial crisis. So we're going to start with the grim, dark side of the economy, namely the crisis of 08, 09, and 10, and what that was like for you running the global stage of capitalism, kind of from a, a crisis management perspective and restoring CEO confidence of your illicit companies and investor confidence? Well, uh, first of all, I had just about put that out of my memory, but I thank you guys for uh, bringing, bringing that back up. Um, yeah, so I had I, uh, I changed jobs in December of 2007. I left Goldman Sachs after 20 plus years. And uh, <clears throat> I tell people now the next time I change jobs, I guess they should duck because a hundred days into my uh, role as uh, CEO at the NYSE um, was the Bear Stearns weekend. Um, And then six months later, we were on, we we were in full on crisis mode uh, in September. And what you, what you quickly learn, I think as a leader, and I would have to admit to, to you guys and your listeners, like, I was a rookie CEO. I'd never been a public company executive before. And very shortly into my tenure, as I was learning the job, you were in a crisis that I think we'll be talking about for for a really long time. And the normal thing you would do as a leader is you would go to some of your mentors and say, um, you know, this is all new to me. I want to do my best. Um, I'll put in all the work I have to put in. Um, you guys must have seen this before. Can you coach me? Can you give me some counsel? Is there a playbook I should be using? And unfortunately, with what was going on in 08, there really was no playbook because uh, n- no one who who I could lean on had ever seen anything like this. So then you're th- then you're left to follow your intu- I- intuition. You, you work super hard to be part of the solution. And that involves a lot of work with regulators, gov- other government agencies, the companies and, and their leaders, the media. And I have to say, out of all of those, the media was probably the t- toughest to deal with um, because the media was almost excited about the crisis, uh, was putting stories out about the market's you know, not being open or potentially closing because of fear. And uh, I, I, that was the time, guys, when I got more upset than any time probably in my career. And I remember saying to the media at one point, instead of spreading rumors about us closing for a few days, why don't you guys close for a few days and give us a chance to sort this all out? And it's the only time in my career that I got fan mail instead of other kinds of mail. Um, but you just follow your intuition and you try to talk everybody in off the ledge because history tells us you're going to get a crisis every seven to 10 years and you just deal with it as best you can. And, and so moving into today's then economy, uh, of course we've recovered from there. The Dow has yeah. gained almost 6,000 points since Trump was elected and, and peaked in January at around 26, six roughly, what do you think this is attributable to? Is it? Do you think it's Trump's America First policy? Do you think it was a reaction to the inevitable tax reform that he had campaigned on? Um, and then, of course, there was that two thousand point re- correction 
last month. Right. Do, right. Should we expect another? What, what are your thoughts? Yeah. Yeah. So I think for 17, if, if we look back on it in hindsight, gives us the benefit of perfect vision. You had uh, a confluence of a, a number of issues last year. You had you had people being very excited about tax reform and the corporate tax rate finally being competitive relative to what global tax rates look like. You had, uh, in my opinion, long overdue uh, repatriation of money that was trapped overseas. And, and my point in my last role to the, to the government and to the White House was it, we shouldn't really be too concerned about what companies do with it it is all wealth and job creating when it comes back to the U.S., even if it just is in the form of dividends or buybacks or doubling down on manufacturing in the U.S., it, it, it's all good. Um, you had an economy that was doing okay, and you had really what, what, I, what I've heard others call the, the Tina trade, the, you know, there is no alternative. If, rates are, if the risk-free rate is close to zero and bonds are fully priced, like it's not hard to understand why the equity market went up last year between tax reform, repatriation, a, a reasonably good economy, and not a lot of attractive alternatives. Then you turn the clock to eighteen, and as as Jake said, you know we've had a little bit of a pullback here. Um, I think I think you'll see more. Um, I personally think you're going to see more volatility now. I think last year. It felt like the market was volatile because we had the daily tweet from the White House or, or it felt noisy, but it never really translated into underlying volatility in the markets as the markets would measure it. And it seems like 2018, we've got rhetoric catching up with reality and you've got talks of tariffs, you've got talks of trade wars, rates are starting to creep up, the stocks that led the rally are kind of pulling back a little bit. So I think, I think the noise is now starting to find its way uh, into the VIX. And I think people are a little more anxious than they probably were throughout 17. And, and you, you mentioned the, the stocks that were really leading that rally. The, the acronym is FANG, I guess, yeah. Facebook, uh, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, Google. Yeah. Uh, front, front page of the Wall Street Journal today, Red Talks, tech stocks slide amid backlash and they're down 397 billion in market value since March of March 12th. Um, honestly, I don't, I don't personally do any day trading. So all I'm feeling is the tremendous growth in my retirement funds last 18 months. So long, long term, what do you think we expect? Do we, do we expect it to, to keep growing or, um, is that correction inevitable? Do you think? Yeah, I mean, markets uh, go up, markets go down. I don't want to sound trite, but I mean, those stocks are all have pretty good business models from where I'm sitting. Um, And look, maybe they were, maybe they were a little ahead of themselves. It's it's hard to say. I mean, that's crowd psychology. But I I think what we should be more focused on is um, history tells us that. Every seven to 10 years, you have some kind of a, a crisis. Let's put that in quotes because it comes in lots of different shapes and sizes. And where we started the conversation a few minutes ago, you know, feels like it wasn't that long ago, but it was 10 years ago. Um, you know, we're, we just passed the 10 year anniversary of the, of, of, of the Bear Stearns weekend. Um, 
that really was the the, the tip of the spear in 2008. Um, <clears throat> I think the economy is still doing okay. I'm not sure if I were running the Fed, I'd be as aggressively raising rates as they appear to be inclined to do. But if we take a three to 400 year perspective, rates are still really, really low with a, with a historical view. But I think people are a little nervous about that. And I, I read a lot of what uh, a friend of mine named Ian Bremer writes about geopolitical risks. And it feels to me like I'm less worried about the stock market than what can happen geopolitically that might impact the market. Um, so th that's where I would take the conversation. I think there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of geopolitical potential turmoil more than, you know, I don't, I don't wake up every day thinking stocks are overvalued right now. And, and do you think that is the crisis we might be up against? Do you think it's more of the geopolitical sphere than it would be, uh, like the tech bubble back in the day? Yeah, because because the tech bubble from when 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 you guys were probably in high school uh, um, and, you know, when we think about the first Internet boom, most of those companies didn't have a business. You know, Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google, Alphabet, you know, whatever you want to call these companies. I mean, they all have real businesses, real revenues. Um, I, I, so I'm more worried about um a potential crisis of confidence around some of the geopolitical uh, stuff. Um, I, I think we've got, you know, it, it might segue us to a discussion here tonight about lessons in leadership, because um, this is not about whether you like the person who's running the country or you don't. It's really irrelevant. We're here to measure that individual's competency and how they go about getting their job done. Um and I think I think that's I think we're on the precipice of something there. So to me, if the next crisis comes from anywhere, it's going to be because this rhetoric we talked about earlier starts to translate into reality in a in a negative way. And when you mean rhetoric, you're speaking towards you mentioned tariffs. I mean, is that something that you're looking at that could really kind of create some type of really strong geopolitical kind of turmoil? I, I, I think so. And I'd love to get your guys' opinion on that, too. But, I mean, not being an expert in this, uh, we know saber rattling always goes on, uh, you know, between leaders of, you know, of, of, of important economies. That's, that's, not, that's not newsworthy. It happens all the time. And I, I actually think at the end of the day, you know, someone like China is way too pragmatic to get into a trade war. It's not in their interest to do that. But at the same time, you know, if someone rattles their saber at them, they have to rattle it back. And then the question is, um, you know, where does this go? But, you know, what's what's your guys take yeah. on it? Yeah. So my t my my perspective is when you look at China and even you look at Japan, I'm thinking of mercantilistic countries that have had extremely successful companies that have competed at the, at the at the global scale. And I kind of ask myself, when you look at, for example, China, they've engaged in tariffs and have a very long history of that. And just in this latest example, you know, Trump uh, hits China with tariffs, for example, on steel. Well, we just kind of heard that China came back and applied uh, some, you know, some, some other tariffs. And so I don't know at what point we kind of say, are we in a trade war? But 
I, when I look at China, I kind of say, and I realize we're not, we don't have the exact same structure, right? We're more of a free market. Yeah. Having said that, though, they have engaged in tariffs. There have been, to a degree, an uneven playing field as you look at, you know, companies that compete globally. And I kind of scratch my head and just kind of think about it. And I'm like, well, wh- why is it they, they've had some very successful companies in an environment where, they have lived in tariffs. Why is that? Why have they not been impacted? Right, and it's and it's it's hard to know because uh, and and you guys should think about having uh, uh, Ian on in one of these discussions because he'll do a much much better job than than I'm about to. But the economies are also at different points in their life, right? Like China. The point I made a lot in my last job is China and the U.S. have a mutual interest in figuring this out. So there may be noise that comes from the political leaders and they may be, they may feel like for their own constituents, they have to take a stand and make a public statement. But when the door closes and they get together, it's in the two largest economies interest to just figure out how to uh, work together because every other alternative is less attractive. At the same time, you know, China's got a much larger population than the U S uh, we have to remember their capital markets really just reopened less than three decades ago. So it's a fairly immature underlying capital market for an economy of that size. And, you know, things that we did post-World War II in this country to sort of get the country to where we are now, that's some of what China is going through now. And we just, we kind of forget that that it wasn't that long ago that we went through similar things in this country. So you, you, when you add all that up, you believe that cooler heads will prevail. They'll, they'll close the door. They'll figure this out. They'll, they'll do it. I think the challenge that everyone's wrestling with now and what you're seeing manifesting itself in higher volatility in the market is we have a leader now who, and forget whether it's a political leader or a corporate leader, you know, Jake heard me do a number of town halls during my NYSE tenure. If you're not surrounding yourself with people who challenge you, who tell you the truth, who, you know, who, who tell you that, you know, some of your ideas are good, but some aren't, um, like p- people get really nervous. And what I'm seeing happening now is a lot of the people that I thought were smart, additive to the equation, potential challengers, they seem to be the ones leaving. You combine that with a kind of confused, somewhat unscripted communication style, and I think it makes people nervous that maybe cooler heads won't prevail. Right. So it, it sounds sorry like, for the stream it, of consciousness, but uh, I think you guys know what I'm trying to say. Right. And ultimately, your kind of argument is around the fact that maybe there was some noise that was being generated in 17. Well, all this could be catching up and and could be you know, manifesting itself in, in, the, in the market, correct? That could lead to some type of geopolitical, uh, you know, crisis that will affect, you know, global yeah. markets, right? I think that's, yeah, yeah, I think that's right, guys, because I think people, like, just, I think people wrote it off as noise when tax reform was being worked on, the economy was doing okay, rates hadn't gone up yet, you know, everything was feeling pretty good. And then when some of that, so now tax reform's baked in, Rates are starting to go up. Uh, There's more rhetoric around trade wars. He's starting to go after some of the technology stocks. And remember, it doesn't matter whether 
he means to do something or it's just rhetoric, like people have a tough time sorting that out because when you're a when you're a leader of a large company or a big economy, you know, everything you say basically is like you said it through a megaphone and every comment you make is reviewed under a microscope. So if you have a provocative style like our president does, like we have to understand that's going to it's pretty easy for that noise to translate into fear, concern and volatility. And so if we put if we look at just the the agenda item of addressing the trade deficit with China, we can we can kind of put rhetoric aside and just kind of analyze is this something that he should be going after because the media is calling it a trade war uh, again, today in the Wall Street Journal, there's an article, U.S. farmers brace for tariffs because China is likely implementing proportional tariffs on agricultural products, similar to what the U.S. imposed on steel and aluminum. If we put the rhetoric aside, is there merit in this America first policy to level the playing field as, as we are discussing bef- before going live here? Yeah, I mean, there's always a case to be made to to level the playing field. And then the question you, it really comes down to how do you communicate that? Right. Because if the way you communicate that is to say, hey, the playing field's been kind of unlevel for a while. All we're going to try to do here is, is reason with some of our trade partners and see if we can figure out a more level playing field. That's one way to approach it. You know, jumping off the top rope and kind of coming in hot, you know, that may be that's a more provocative communication right. style that I think then confuses the message. Now, again, maybe it's just a negotiating tactic. I don't know. Um, but y- you would, you would, we would all feel better if someone would just kind of do the math for us, lay out what the situation is, lay out whether it really needs to be fixed or not. Um, and if so, where does it need to be? fixed where is it on level and what's working what's not working what's fair what's not fair and i think that's what everyone's looking for and you know the 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 people the 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 folks who run the biggest economies like i want to go back to the pragmatism word again like it's in everyone's interest to figure it out but you'd like to figure it out you know thoughtfully methodically um and I'm not making comments about whether someone acts presidential or doesn't act presidential. It's just about what is the objective you're trying to achieve and what's the most efficient and cost effective way of getting there and making sure everybody understands what you're trying to achieve instead of just saying, well, I declared a trade war. That means I put America first. Maybe, maybe not. Just give me the facts and then I'll make my own judgment. Yeah. And, and I want to bring in a a question from one of our listeners and without this sounding too much like a political town hall, uh, he sent in a question specifically about steel because he works in a manufacturing business outside of Chicago and their price of steel just got totally jacked up. And I, I picked this question because I think it's representative of many small businesses feeling the tariff from their suppliers. So what do, what do we three, because three of us happen to be on the phone, what do th- we three think the expectation is of businesses in America feeling these immediate hardships? And I, I get. I'll start because uh, you yeah, guys sure. expressed your opinions last time. I I do kind of feel like this this trade war. It feels like an arms race, but I feel like I feel like the rhetoric is short sighted because I, I I do think that um and I, 
and Duncan, you probably have an opinion about the volatility that we're experiencing right off the bat. But if this is a long-term fix, and I think prices will normalize again, but it's bringing jobs to steel manufacturers, aluminum manufacturers in the U.S. And I think that was the whole goal is this America first policy. But but they're going to feel it's almost like I hate to say it because I'm not in the industry, but it's almost like they have to weather the storm for a little bit and just see these prices react briefly in the short term and then let them adjust long term and and let us as a nation feel that trade deficit kind of uh, at least, you know, in some part diminish, but... Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's I think that's the right perspective. The problem is the the markets, the commodity markets react immediately. Um, so the, those businesses are going to have to uh, deal with the short term reaction, be it good or bad. Um, and then it, it will take much longer for the markets to sort out. You know, markets don't always take a long view, right? We wish they did. They're supposed to be efficiently priced, and our professors in college tell us they are, and our experience tells us, you know, in the long run, maybe, in the short run, not so much. And I think what's happening is you now have fear of the unknown because no one knows exactly what's going to happen. Um, we, We have a leader who thinks he's doing what his constituencies want, and I guess the next barometer we'll really have is in the midterms, and then we'll find out whether that's the case or not. I, I, I don't know. I'm not smart enough to know. Um, but I do think a lot of the companies that are in the that are caught in the crosshairs of this are going to have to deal with uh, some reverberations in the short term to their business models that they probably did not anticipate. Yeah. Um- you know, I kind of mentioned it a little bit earlier, but, you know, I guess ultimately my perspective is, you know, from an economist perspective, I would clearly say, look, trade, trade, there, there, there's little to be gained in engaging in any type of like trade war. In a situation like this, the costs are going to move downstream. And ultimately yeah. what you're going to be left with is no real improvement in this, in the steel industry. But, you know, coming from an industrial kind of manufacturing background at a global company, it does kind of rub me the wrong way that um, other countries can, uh, you know, can, can apply tariffs. And, you know, um, you know, yet you're kind of expected kind of not to really do anything and not do anything to really engage in leveling like the playing field. You know, I'm thinking about manufacturing plants if you were mm-hmm. going to kind of move a manufacturing plant in China, I mean, you could get hit on what's coming in. You could get hit on what's coming out. There's going to be currency manipulation. And I just kind of asked myself, okay, well, w- w- what do you really do if you want to compete, you know, at the global scale when you have players that just aren't playing, you know, the same, the, by the same set of rules? Uh, I don't, I don't by any, ch- by any means have the answer. I just do kind of go back to, um, you know, it, it is, it is to me interesting. Yeah. And it's a, it may be a problem that, you know, is hard to solve and is destined to be unsolved because we we still live in the greatest country in the world. We have an economy that functions in spite of all those things you said, and seems to do quite well. And you, on one hand, you want to level the playing field and it's a little bit frustrating. On the other hand, it hasn't, 
ironically, it seems to have held us back a lot less than it's held those who impose them back. So um, there's again, there's no right or wrong answer. It's we have a leader who thinks he's doing what his constituencies want and we'll find out soon enough. I think we'd all feel better if it were more uh, fact based and less emotionally driven. Um, but that's, you know, he's the leader. That's his call. That's not our call. Sure. And I think, uh, I, I think the other, yeah. the other quick point I was going to make too, is I think in any type of negotiation or any type of like deal, specifically looking at these tariffs, who has the leverage, right? We're talking about two like major super like economies. And I think, you know, understanding in this equation, who the players are and who has the leverage. I think that's really important. And I think it can be, be debated that, you know, as we carry our uh, so much debt is being carried, right, uh, yeah. with the Chinese, it kind of goes back to, um, you know, who, who has the leverage there. So I think it's something that we have to be very careful about. Agreed. All right. The what ne- other yeah, the ne- you guys the ne- have? Yeah, the next tonight? topic that I wanted to solve the trade war problem. <laughs> I don't think, I'm not sure the three of us can do that. Um, I don't think so. We want to talk to you about CEO activism. And I think since you were leading the the New York Stock Exchange, this term has really evolved. And it's top of mind for us at Fuqua because there's a new class taught that that followed recent case studies of executives taking stances in today's polarized political sphere. And I'd love to get your take on it. Namely, uh, Dixon Walmart raising minimum age to buy guns to 21 ahead of any legislation that, that will or won't get passed. Uh, another example of Target's trans-inclusive bathroom policy. So what we're seeing, what we're finding is that these CEOs are taking a stance in political issues, and they really have to be calculated about this because it's going to affect their consumers and, and of course, the the bottom line and, and their duty to shareholders to increase value. And so where, where you know... when you were leading the New York, um, it it didn't feel as polarized to me. But of course, I was a naive, right out of college, uh, individual working at at the company. Um, do you have thoughts on on this CEO activism and how it's kind of evolved over the last several years? Uh, I think it's a it's a it's a terrific question because. The, the view as recently as when I was running a public company was you, you always felt that you and your company should use your platform where you could to do good, to make an impact, to influence what you could in places where it made sense or where it was a natural uh, alignment. Um, and like you, you shouldn't have the job if you didn't want part of it to be to make a difference where you where you thought you could for the uh, for, for the kind of communities in the ecosystem around you. I, and I can give a few examples of what we did with that in a minute. Um, I think now your guys observation is is really good. Um, it is the world is so much more polarized now that it seems like a lot of these uh, efforts to do what I just talked about, are, are kind of shrouded in politics. So we've moved from where not only do business leaders um, find themselves less able to shape discourse, like one of your professors you know, wrote that article that you guys shared with me, um, 
but it's almost like their responses are reactive instead of proactive and dictated by politics. Now, are they trying to help lead conversations and and raise awareness for certain issues? Sure. But the problem is you're now calculating the the constituencies and the tales of those constituencies and politics into the equation. And when we worked on things like financial literacy in the workplace, or we worked on things like um, helping companies uh, understand how to bring servicemen and women who are coming back to the, uh, you know, to the, to, to, to the U S to assimilate into their communities and into their businesses or, you know, something Jake's very familiar with when we did when we did the work in Belfast to try to create a financial technology ecosystem, hoping that would mean that more college graduates would stay in Northern Ireland and kind of change the default outcome for so many young people there. Like, I didn't do any of those things because they were politically motivated. I, I did them because I thought they were the right thing to do. And they were areas where our brand or our business naturally took us there. And I feel like today it's a, it's a very different equation. And I don't envy the guys that, you know, the men and women that have to make the decisions now, because I feel like it's largely dictated by politics. And, and I think that's right. And we had Mike Coombs on last episode talking about gun control. He's the owner of a, a outdoor retail company, small business in Seattle, Washington. And we posed the same question to him because this was on the tail end of the Parkland shooting down in Florida and Dixon Walmart had just come out with this, with this uh, uh, minimum age to buy guns. And it's a very tough question to address because in his view, he has best practices put into the process of selling a gun to, and I, I encourage listeners to go back to that episode and, and hear us out. He put in best practices to sell a gun um, over the counter and they weed out people that they deem as not eligible and they reserve the right to not sell a gun to everyone that walks in, but they also follow the law and the, it's not necessarily in their best interest to take a stance because they feel like they're doing everything else properly. Um, and, and not selling guns to people that they deem as, uh, you know, not personally eligible to have one. So it, it's it's just a really tough question to answer, and I, I appreciate your thoughts on that. Um, also wanted to get into briefly uh, antitrust issues. So CEO activism straight into antitrust. There's I'm trying to think of a bridge to get there, but I'll just yeah. dive right in. <laughs> That's a, that's a hard bridge to build, but okay, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, okay. Um, a couple deals that are in the works right now, AT&T and Time Warner are $85 billion takeover. They're in trial. That, And then you have Disney and um, trying to buy some of Fox's assets. They are obviously in the entertainment space, but then you have Amazon buying Whole Foods and you have Walmart buying Humana or contemplating those transactions where where do they draw the line in allowing those deals to happen why does AT&T and Time Warner go to trial for so long and uh, I know Amazon and Whole Foods are having their own issues but uh, of course you've been through 
major transactions um, yes. with Deutsche Börse uh, not working out and then selling the New York Stock Exchange nice euro next to ICE. What are your What are your thoughts on this too big to fail mentality for uh, antitrust yeah. issues? Yeah, it's. I mean, it's 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 a great question, and it's one I'm sure the the DOJ is asking itself on a on a daily, if not hourly, basis. Because, um, like, think about the four mega deals you just talked about. Um, you know, AT and T, Time Warner, and Disney, Fox are sort of are sort of right down the middle of the fairway for what we've always thought of M and A to be. Um, you know, o- overlapping industries, if not the same, if not the same industry, uh, concerns about you know too much too much influence in the market, et cetera. That's the calculus the DOJ and other antitrust officials around the world have always prided themselves in being able to do. And then the calculus becomes very simple if they find that that you know a, a major or minor part of your merger is going to. Um, you know, change the economics for the worse for consumers or users in a certain part of the market, uh, they're inclined to block your deal or ask for a concession. And if they don't, they're they're inclined to, there's no grounds on which they can really not uh, approve it. When you, when you think about the other two you mentioned, the Amazon Whole Foods deal and the Walmart Humana deal, um, those deals would have been a little harder to predict uh, five or 10 years ago. And those that calculus we just talked about is much harder to apply. So I personally think from my seat, again, not being an expert, it's hard to uh, it's hard for that calculus to suggest that Amazon shouldn't be allowed to do a deal with Whole Foods or Walmart shouldn't be allowed to deal do a deal with Humana. Um, So I think I think the DOJ has to kind of hit reset. We know whether we want to admit it or not and whether the government agencies and the regulators want to admit it or not. As I learned in our European deal, politics were absolutely a factor. Um, the, you know, the, the Europeans were going through a very tough time at that point and politics, and these are human beings making the decisions. Um, politics is still a factor, but I, I think the four deals you just talked about, you've got two traditional and you've got two very non-traditional to date and I think you'll see more of the latter and less of the former because it's just easier to get those kinds of deals done in the long run. And and so is do you think it is a matter of I mean so there's a huge value prop for Amazon buying Whole Foods. Um, yep. As far as the real estate for the, goes, for the consumer too, right? I yeah. Mean, that's not a bad value prop for the consumer, um, and and it's a and it's a good deal for Amazon and Whole Foods too, right? Right. And so yes. I just I just wonder, and it's hard to speculate because um, I didn't want to take too much time in this segment. But yeah. as far as precedent set for allowing these deals to go through, is it like a, a dollar number that you put on potential revenues or something, something wacky or creative like that that says, "And eh, no, you're you're just too big of a firm," and and if people become yeah. too reliant on you, then they're screwed, and then the yeah. market collapses. Maybe. I mean, that's where the humans come in, right? We saw that with, you know, too big to fail came in on the banks. But as you and I talked about the other day, Jake, I mean, I think like there's a case to be made that that consolidating uh, market capitalization among a handful of banks 
it wasn't really about too big to fail. It was almost about too big to succeed because the banks got so big that they really couldn't get out of their own way. But more importantly, the, the, the systemic risk was too concentrated in too few companies. Like, it's harder for me to construct that argument, you know, if Amazon just keeps getting bigger buying companies like Whole Foods. But you would think inevitably an, a government agency, uh, you know, executive is going to say, yeah, you're, you're just too big. I, I can't really make a case why I should block this, but you're just you, you have too much influence now. Like, I, I suppose that's inevitable. I just can't figure out what the rationale for that would be yet, if I'm honest. No, all, right? all I wanted to say is that's a really interesting point on the kind of too big kind of piece. I, I think that's really interesting. I, I, yeah, I think I think you're right on. I mean, it, and it'll play out. I mean, because eventually Amazon's going to go after another industry and Correct. they'll just get huge. And so does, does the government get involved? And in yeah. It'll and, be interesting you know, to see how that that's when out. the disruptor becomes the dominator and then the government gets nervous. Exactly. Right? Exactly. So, um, let's talk about another disruptive technology that you have. Uh, so you like that bridge? I've really tried there. <laughs> that was a good bridge, dude. Yeah, go, okay. go for it. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, namely cryptocurrency and blockchain. And right. you've, you've taken a, a particular interest in that one and would love to hear your thoughts on yeah. is something like Bitcoin or Ethereum um, – part of our future uh should we be looking out for it should we be investing in it i actually personally think blockchain is more interesting as a technology than cryptocurrency but uh would love to get your take on that we actually we took a class as uh it was part of our requirement for finance concentration crypto what was it called crypto ventures innovation and crypto yeah, ventures and crypt, crypt, uh, right. yeah yeah yeah, yeah, so we, I, we've learned, I, I, which I'm was, by the way, the most popular class taught at Fuqua this past yeah. year. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's good. I mean, I'm glad to hear it was part of the curriculum. Uh, I, I feel like um, there is a place in the world for a digital currency, uh, you know, like, like a Bitcoin or like Ethereum or whatever, you know, in that whole genre. I, I think the challenge we all have now is this is an opportunistic market. It is not an institutional market. Um, you know, I have friends who have made a lot of money trading around Bitcoin. Um, I, I think it's a trade. It's not a it's not the disruption that it promises to be yet. <clears throat> and it won't be until I think some infrastructure gets put in around the edges. Now, having said that, um, you know, I also feel like I'm less equipped to evaluate um, the right types of investments there. I think I'm more equipped, given my background, to understand where blockchain might make a difference because that's more in the guts of the system. I would call blockchain more a middle and back office technology rather than a front office technology. But I think what blockchain, this could be one of the most meaningful um, uh, disruptions in the in the underlying part of financial services and really any market where ownership changes hands, I think there's so many applications for blockchain to make inefficient markets more efficient. Um, and I've, I've invested in two companies in the space. Uh, I think there's a lot of good work that will be done there. I think there's a lot of processes that could be streamlined. Something as simple as how we transact 
equities in the most developed capital market in the world in the United States, it is still a bit of a, uh, it, it, it seems like a, a bit of a, um, an anomaly that when you buy and sell stocks in the U.S., it's three business days before the money and the security officially changes hands. You think about every other transaction you would do in life, that seems kind of strange to me. So I, I think there's a lot that blockchain technology can do to make things a lot more efficient. Um, I, I think hopefully some of what the infrastructure they build will make the Bitcoin market uh, more accessible to everyone and, uh, and a lot less volatile. I'm glad you brought that last one up because I brought the same thing up in class. Uh, I was on the infrastructure team at the New York Stock Exchange and thinking how blockchain could help trading be from T plus three to almost instantaneously because it's just a ledger with all sorts. I mean, that would be remarkable. Uh, it goes back to the infrastructure question because that would mean uh, I think Bitcoin is the one with the lightning network. So you can, you, you, you can transact a lot faster. Of course, yeah. a market would need a separate network similar to safety um, and then redundancy. And it, it's just daunting yeah. to me as a technology to actually implement it. But I, I agree that the concept of an instantaneous ledger and uh, yeah. a, a receipt of transaction will right. be part of that future. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 to me, it's inevitable, and there's no reason people should be taking any credit risk in a market like that. The transaction should be consummated and affected, you know, at the same time, you know, settlement shouldn't be delayed for three to five days, right? It's, it's, I think we're past that point, so... All right. I want to be respectful yep. of your users' time. So, yeah, and and uh, I wanted to. Give you guys, a field of choice. One more topic. I wanted to. Well, it, this is going to be about leadership, and I wanted to make mention of the commencement speech that you gave to the Colgate University class of 2013, and I'm going to post that link on our website. Colgate is enamored by the number 13 for its own reasons, and you provided what was what you dubbed 13 for 13 for your consideration, and actually, Duncan, as fate would have it, yet again. This is our 13th episode of TNDC podcast. So I thought you might appreciate that. Well, that, that's why I agreed to come on, Jake. I knew that. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> so if, you, if you boil down that speech for our audience, what advice would you give us millennials entering into the workforce? Yeah. So it's been a long time since I, I gave that speech, but I would, I would boil it down to just a handful of things. Like um, it, it turns out it's not that hard to be a good person. If we, if we wake up every day and just try to leave things better than we found it as tried as it sounds, um, if you pay it forward, someone else will pay it forward and it, it kind of works. And then as you enter the workforce, just keep in mind that um, your first or second job is unlikely to be your last job. And anyone who you work for is a role model. We have this tendency to say, when we use the word role model, we think of it only in the positive sense. As I mentioned in my commencement address a few years ago, I learned more about being a leader from the worst boss I ever had than many of the great bosses that I had because I I felt so strongly about how ineffective this person was that I thought if I could be his antithesis, I would be a pretty good human being and a pretty good leader. 
So everyone's a role model. You can learn from everyone, even if you're learning how not to be. And most importantly, and lastly, pride yourself on being self-aware. Like I, I, I've learned, if I've learned nothing else in business, I want to work with people who know their strengths, know their weaknesses, are secure with both, because it makes it easier for everyone to be on the team, swim in their own lane and do their job and, and for a leader to position them to play to their strengths. We, we, if we're honest with ourselves, we know what pitches we can hit. We know what pitches we can hit. Swing at the pitches you can hit. And, you know, as, as Old Dominion says in a great country song, you know, you know, chase after the dream, don't chase after the money. And if you do what you're good at and you do what you love, like you win. Thank you for that. So, and, and so Duncan also sits on the board of Congressional Medal of Honor Foundation. And it's with that that I'll lead into our tradition. Duncan, at the end of every episode of TNC, we raise a glass to the brave men and women fighting both overseas and domestically, preserving our right to free speech and allowing us the opportunity to discuss these issues freely. So cheers to you all. Um, really appreciate what you do for us. Duncan, thank you very much for spending the time with us. It uh, really means a lot. Harold, as always. We enjoyed it. Thanks, Duncan. That was awesome. Yep. Thank you, guys. And uh, in, uh, enjoy the balance of your tenure at Fuqua. And thanks for having me on on the 13th episode. <laughs> Absolutely. And that is a wrap. Thank you. There's no such thing as a broken heart